Welcome to the For Love of Space podcast. I'm Paul Beatty. If you find yourself looking into the sky with awe and wonder, then this is the place for you. I'm not a scientist, physicist, or even an astronomer, but I am a guy who has an unquenchable love for anything and everything that has to do with space. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Welcome to this week's episode. I do want to encourage you to leave any uh, comments or feedback that you have uh, at uh, Twitter for the love of space. So let's go ahead and get started. So what lies beyond our own solar system? We've talked about our solar system and some of the objects and places in it. Uh, what's the big picture? So to understand the bigger the bigger picture, what lies out there, and where our place is in this world, uh, we need to talk about galaxies. So what exactly is a galaxy? Well, if you think about it, a galaxy is just really a vast or huge collection of all the stars, uh, the planetary systems around those stars, the gas, dust, dark matter, um, anything that is all held together by gravity. Now, galaxies can exist uh, by themselves. Uh, they can exist in, um, they can be a satellite of a larger galaxy. Uh, they can live in neighborhoods. We call them uh, galaxy clusters. And there's many different shapes and sizes and appearances of galaxies. They generally fall into um, three distinct categories. In some places, you'll read about a fourth Um and they can range in size. They can be very small. There's some dwarf galaxies that have less than 100 million stars, uh, up to giants that have over a trillion stars. It's also estimated that there's somewhere in the vicinity of 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. So to have a better understanding of galaxies themselves, let's just take a quick look at the different types. So one of the, um, the galaxies types that when you look at them is called an elliptical galaxy. Now an elliptical galaxy is just that. Uh, it's usually an elongated, you know, football type shaped, uh, but it can actually be quite round. Uh, most elliptical galaxies um, don't have as much of the uh, gas and dust that you'll see in some of the other types of galaxies. Uh, they're also not uh, forming as many stars. Uh, most of the elliptical galaxies have older stars uh, in them. It's estimated about a third of all the galaxies uh, in the universe are elliptical in nature. And they vary in size from a few, few thousand light years wide to over 300,000 light years across. It's also thought that most elliptical galaxies were probably formed by uh, galaxies uh, merging together. And we'll look at that uh, in a little bit. But galaxies do bump into each other, and they do steal stars from each other, and they do um, merge together and become a single galaxy. One of the other types of galaxies, and probably uh, the most common, is the spiral galaxy. It's also one of the most dramatic to look at when you've looked at some of the images from Hubble or some of the other deep space telescopes. Um, the spiral galaxies are, are really, really cool to look at. They uh, all have a, in common a central bulge, typically yellowish, uh, 
with uh, blue-white disc of stars. Uh, the uh, center, the galactic center of a spiral galaxy, can um, either be what they call an ordinary uh, spiral galaxy. It's kind of a disc shape. Uh, it does contain usually the older stars, or it can be a barred uh, spiral galaxy. So in a barred spiral galaxy, the central core, instead of being kind of disc-like, is, is more of a bar-shaped uh, with the concentration of uh, the dust and, um, excuse me, and uh, the, some of the older stars within the bar. And then coming off of that, that central, um, either disc or bar, uh, are the arms. The arms uh, go out, and that's what forms your spirals. And the arms are full of the dust, gas, um, stars, planets. And this is what's considered to be uh, where most of the star formation takes place is in the spiral arms of these galaxies. Like I said, this is the most common type of galaxy, and it does make up a large portion of all the galaxies that are out there. We'll talk more about spiral galaxies, too, when we talk about our own galaxy. The third main type is considered to be an irregular galaxy, and it's just that. It's not a uh, spiral, and it's not an elliptical. Uh, it's, there's different types of irregular galaxies. They range in all different shapes and sizes. There's thought to be a pretty probably an abundant, these types of galaxies, in the early universe. Um, and then they developed and became or merged with other galaxies and became ellipticals or spirals. There's a, I'm going to just um, reference uh, two or three of uh, these irregular galaxies in case this is something that you want to uh, go get an image of. Uh, they're pretty cool looking, especially the first two I'm going to talk about. Um, so I highly recommend that you um, Google them or, or go to uh, one of the uh, websites, uh, NASA or other websites that have a lot of um, images that you can view. Or if you have uh, the opportunity to actually uh, uh, view these other ways and take advantage of it, they're, they're really cool looking. The first one is, um, it's called ESO 137-001. Uh, this is a galaxy that's located in the uh, Triangulum um, Austral uh, constellation. It is a barred spiral galaxy, but... When you look at it, it has uh, kind of streamers coming off of it. Instead of the typical spiraled arms that you normally see, it's got streamers coming down that gives it the appearance of a jellyfish. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of cool looking. Uh, I went and saw, I looked at an image of it, and it, it does. It looks like a uh, it looks like a jellyfish out there in space. So very cool. Highly recommend you take a look at it. Uh, the second one is uh, IC twenty one sixty three. Uh, this one is really, really cool looking. Uh, when you look at it, it looks like an eye. Um, actually, it looks like a pair of eyes looking at you, almost liken it to uh, how an owl's eyes kind of look. Uh, it's caused by um, two spiral galaxies colliding with each other. So you have IC2163 and EGC2207. And uh, when they collide together, you have this huge stream of stars and dust, but it has kind of a dark inner and then a bright outer, and it, it looks just like um, just like us eyes looking at you from space. It, it's really cool looking. 
Uh, one of the uh, other things I wanted to mention, um, these galaxies, uh, n- not necessarily because of how they look, um, but there are uh, galaxies in, and it seems to be like they're thinking that a, a lot of galaxies, including our own, have a black hole at the core of it. Uh, now, black holes is a big subject, and we could talk for a long time just on black holes. Um, but there's two galaxies that we know of so far that are thought to have actually uh, two black holes in them, uh, which is just absolutely amazing. The uh, first one is NGC uh, 7674, which is a spiral galaxy. And the other one is uh, 0402 um, 379, which is an elliptical galaxy. It's also classified as a radio galaxy. And if you ever hear something classified as a radio galaxy, it, it really just means that um, the galaxy emits more light at a radio wavelength uh, than it does at visible wavelength. So it's easier to be picked up by a radio telescope than a um, the normal optical uh, telescope that takes in the visual light forms. There's also a fourth type of galaxy you may hear uh, mentioned. Um, it's not everywhere when I was doing research, uh, but it is mentioned here and again. It's called a lenticular galaxy. And lenticular galaxy really uh, means it's a spiral galaxy that doesn't have the arms any longer. So when you think about galaxies, and, and galaxies just, just fill the universe, it's, it's amazing. They had an image that was taken from uh, the Hubble uh, space telescope and they just observed a small section of space very small section of space and there were over 10,000 galaxies just in the one image alone which is just amazing um, so when you think of galaxies it's always good to relate it back to something we know um, so we'll relate it back to our own galaxy and, of course, everybody probably knows that our galaxy is referred to as the Milky Way galaxy. And it's also considered a barred spiral. So it has that bar in the center and then four main spiral arms that come off of that. Uh, the bar of the galaxy is considered to be its galactic center. And when you're out in very dark skies you have almost no light pollution um the moon is not full uh, new moon preferably where the moon is dark uh, and you can really see the sky you can see the bar going across the nighttime sky and it gives the appearance of um having that kind of white milky substance going across the center of the sky it is it's an amazing sight if you haven't had the chance please make it a point sometime to do that it is just awe inspiring uh, it is also believed there it is a gigantic black hole at the center of our galaxy and black holes are becoming more and more um not theory any longer um the black hole the center of our galaxy right now is theory. We haven't visualized it, uh, but scientists are pretty sure that it exists because they um, trace the path of the stars in, our, in the center. And they seem to orbit a supermassive object, and they can't see that supermassive object. So if you can't see it, 
but you can tell that it's there, then they're classifying that as a possible black hole. Now, black hole doesn't mean that uh, it's only theoretical, like I said. Uh, in 2019, there was actually an image taken for the first time of a black hole. The, um, the Event Horizon Telescope, which is kind of a really cool thing. Uh, Event Horizon is taken from uh, that line where um, the point of no return around a black hole, right? Where you're, the gravitational pull coming in and you can't escape it and you're drawn into the hole. That's the Event Horizon. Well, the Event Horizon Telescope is a multinational research project and it, the main function is to image black holes. It links different radio telescopes from around the world and creates a virtual telescope that really is, they call the Earth telescope because it pretty much takes up the Earth. Um, and they were uh, looking at the uh, galaxy uh, Messier 87. And on uh, April of 2019, they actually have a high-resolution image of the black hole, uh, which is pretty amazing. You can see the uh, kind of halo around it. And it's pretty neat. So we're talking about the Milky Way galaxy and, and kind of how it got its name. Again, when you're looking up in the sky, it kind of looks like milk as it's uh, that white band going across the sky, which is all the stars and, and dust. And um, But ancient observers, when they looked at that, of course, um, the ancient Greeks brought a lot of things back to, to their uh, mythology, to their um, belief system. And they gave it the name from the, uh, they have a myth of the goddess Hera, who is uh, nursing Hercules. And as it goes, you know, when he got done suckling and he pulled away, uh, her breast milk spilled across the sky. So just kind of an interesting little tidbit there. It is thought that our Milky Way uh, galaxy has been a hungry galaxy in its time period. Uh, and that has probably absorbed about six other galaxies. Uh, again, it's very common for galaxies to bump each other, and Milky Way is no exception. It's thought to have a, a little over 100 billion different stars, and it's pretty massive. Uh, it goes uh, anywhere from 120,000 to 180,000 light years in diameter. And the... Uh, mentioned that there's uh, four main uh, spiraled arms and they're all named our um, solar system uh, sits on one of those arms we are not at the galactic center of the milky way we are far from the galactic center of the milky way we're actually about twenty-seven thousand light years from the galactic center and our solar system sits on the um, inner edge of what's called the orion arm of the galaxy when I first started talking about galaxies, I mentioned that they can be by themselves or they can be in clusters. Well, the Milky Way is part of a cluster of galaxies. Um, our nearest neighbors, um, there's the uh, large and small uh, Magellanic clouds and the uh, Andromeda galaxy, which is our closest galaxy to the Milky Way. There's also about 50 other galaxies and our galaxy and all those galaxies make up what they call the local group. And if you really want to blow your mind even more, the local group is just one of at least 100 galaxy groups and clusters that's called the Virgo supercluster. Um, 
and this cluster, when you add them all, everything up together, is over 110 million light years in diameter. So just massive. So quick warning, the Andromeda galaxy is on a collision course with the Milky Way. So as I talked about, the Andromeda galaxy, which is also a spiral galaxy, is our closest galactic neighbor. Uh, but that being said, it's still about 2.5 million light years away. And it also has been eating up uh, galaxies. They, they estimate probably for the last 10 billion years, it's been consuming other galaxies and growing larger. Uh, and everything's still in motion. Um, the cool thing about the Andromeda galaxy also is that if you're in an area that is really pretty much pitch black, there is absolutely zero light pollution, clear, clear skies, you can actually, with the naked eye, see the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, don't get too excited, though. Uh, it will look pretty much like a smudge. You won't be able to make out these, the spirals or anything like that, but it looks like a smudge. But it's pretty cool that you can actually visualize another galaxy from inside our own galaxy. And with the aid of a telescope, then it really comes into focus, and it's absolutely a gorgeous-looking galaxy. When you think about how galaxies look, another thing to kind of keep in mind with that is that when you see pictures of the Milky Way galaxy, uh, you have to realize that it's not an actual picture of our galaxy. It's either a picture of another galaxy that's similar to ours or an artist's conception. Uh, we have never been able to send... Um, any spacecraft or satellites or anything outside of our galaxy to take a picture backwards at it. Uh, so there are no pictures, uh, at least not generated uh, from our galaxy, of, of the Milky Way. Again, when we talk about the Andromeda galaxy, it is moving toward our galaxy, and it is thought that it will eventually um, come in contact with our galaxy and collide with it uh, but you can relax uh, it's going to take a, a billions of years for that to happen it's a very slow slow process uh, i think it would be extremely cool if it was possible to uh to to visualize that when it does happen because as and there and there's if you go online you can find a lot of really cool uh kind of like renderings of, of what that might look like uh, if you were uh, present on Earth at that time. Uh, and there's also a lot of things that will say that Earth probably will not be habitable by the time that happens just because of things going on with our own sun. But if it was possible, um, the closer Andromeda gets, then obviously the more visual it will be in the nighttime sky. Uh, and it'll be a point where it will actually look like a galaxy when you look up in the sky. Uh, and eventually, of course, it'll dominate the nighttime sky as it comes in close and starts merging. So that would be absolutely stunning if you, if you could do that. It's also theorized that uh, when the two galaxies merge, uh, since they're both spiral galaxies, that they'll become one galaxy and probably become an elliptical galaxy. Well, I'd like to move away from our talk on galaxies for a minute, and I really want to talk about uh, some of the other exciting things that are going on in the, in the world of space. And the one thing that I'm really pumped up on and uh, very excited about, um, we've talked about, you know, the desire to go to Mars. 
Um, well, NASA is currently in the first steps to, to try to make that a reality. Now, it's not going to be like in the next few years, uh, but they're, they're building the, um, or putting the building blocks together that can make that a reality. So working with the uh, commercial uh, international entities, they're, um, NASA's preparing to have human boots on the moon by 2024, which is extremely exciting. And I know it's the moon again, but humans in space, humans on, on foreign worlds it, it, it is extremely exciting and really, really pumps me up. Uh, they plan on using the technology and the science that they're going to gain by, by doing this uh, to help build and, and send us to Mars as well. So, uh, pardon the pun, but I'm a little over the moon with this. Uh, it's, like I said, it's extremely exciting. Um, and what they're developing is called the Artemis Lunar Exploration Program. And they're deeming that it's the next step in human space exploration. The plan is to send uh, the first woman to the moon and uh, the next man. When you think back on when we've been to the moon last, we've done a lot of things in space. Um, but the last time we actually had boots on the moon was in 1972 through the Apollo 17 mission. So it has been a long time since we've had boots on any planet other than our own. The Artemis mission, and when we actually do step foot on the moon again, is also going to give us an opportunity to explore more of the moon's surface than we ever have before, and also different areas of the moon than we ever have before. Uh, the uh, first mission is actually going to um, have uh, exploration of the uh, southern polar region. And they're really focusing on the southern polar region because they think that's their best chance to possibly find water uh, beneath the surface. So pretty exciting see different areas of the moon. The solar polar region is kind of uh, high regions are in light and the lower regions are in dark. Uh, they're also not going to be sending a rover to the moon, is my understanding. So this will be a walkabout, uh, but it's going to be pretty exciting. So why the moon again? Um, again, I'm excited about it, but I know there's a lot of um, a lot of talk, a lot of debate going on. On come on, let's just go to Mars. We've done the moon. We've been there, done that. What's the point? Well, as NASA is uh, doing this, some of the things they're pointing out is it does give us an opportunity to uh, demonstrate new technologies and new capabilities. Um, and it also does that in a, um, a place that's easier, e more easily accessible. And if something goes wrong, you're a lot closer uh, to home than you would be if you something went wrong on Mars. And with the moon, you're about a three-day journey versus a two-year-plus journey um, to do anything about it if something happened in Mars. So a couple of reasons there. It also helps broaden our commercial international partnerships. Uh, you've heard the expression, it takes a village. Uh, it definitely does. Uh, NASA's not working in isolation with this, nor is it just working with uh, the U.S., but other partners around the uh, globe uh, to make this a reality. Also inspiring future generations, which it absolutely will, and uh, create sustainable exploration by the end of the decade. It also gives us an opportunity to learn more about Earth. It, it seems funny, but leaving Earth actually helps us understand Earth more. 
And they also, um, with exploring the moon, um, plans to create a uh, base for future explorations. Again, possibly to find water, other elements or minerals uh, that might be able to be harvested or mined on the moon. Um, so you don't have to bring everything from Earth every time. Plus, it's a lot easier to um, launch something from the moon than it is from Earth. A lot less gravitation. Uh, escape velocities have to be a lot less. Uh, so there's a lot of things that can can benefit uh, future space travel if you're not starting from the Earth every single time. So let's talk about uh, part of the mission and why it's called Artemis. So when you look at Artemis and again, look at Greek mythology, which you have you've noticed a trend so far, a lot of things are taken from Greek mythology. Uh, Artemis is the Greek goddess of the hunt, also known as the goddess of the moon. So that makes perfect sense. She's the daughter of Zeus and Leto and the twin sister of who else? Apollo. So Apollo was the mission that sent the first man to the moon. Only fitting that Artemis, the twin sister of Apollo, should be doing it now. And sending the first woman to the moon, which is super cool. Uh, a couple other things that's kind of kind of cute about it. Um, the, uh, the main capsule of the Artemis system is Orion. And Orion was um, Artemis' uh, hunting companion. And some of the stories, is uh, Ryan's also killed by Artemis. Um, so it's kind of cool that they named their exploration vehicle for the mission Orion as well. So uh, when you look at the different uh, the systems and how they're going to get the crew to the moon, uh, to the surface of the moon and back home again, they're, uh, the first thing is they're using a um, SLS, which is the system launch system. Uh, to power the craft. It's the most powerful rocket that NASA has ever built. That um, has a uh, the, the central rocket, and then it has uh, two booster rockets on either side, kind of like the configuration of the space shuttle. If you didn't get a chance to see it, I highly recommend you go out to the NASA uh, page uh, and look at it. I watched this um, on the second. They did a uh, static firing of the uh, flight support booster. It was really cool to watch. If you never watch a static firing of a rocket booster, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, again, it was uh, live streamed on NASA TV, but they also um, have it archived so you can watch it again. And what really impressed me was just the, the power that came out of this rocket. Uh, of course, it's an image that you're watching. I was watching on my iPad and you can't feel the rumble of the earth or any of that. But you could still sense the immense power that this booster had. Uh, it was just awe-inspiring. It had a crazy fire plume uh, out of the back of it. It was just hundreds of feet long. Um, and one of the things that uh, I really thought was kind of cool, it only lasted for about 120 seconds, the firing of it, and then there was the cool-off period. Um but when you look at the landscape, it's out in, the, in a desert area, but there was like scrub brush and a lot of, a lot of sand. And when the flame died down after the fire, the whole area behind it was devoid of any kind of vegetation. And it was just smooth. It, kind of, it looked like it just, um, you know, when you heat sand, make glass, it just looked like that's what happened. It just had a glass area. It was very, very cool. Uh, it appeared to work flawlessly. Um, they are collecting the data from it, and it'll make a statement. 
because uh, you know they monitor every aspect of that engine to make sure that it is working flawlessly. So that's the rocket part. So that's going to get us up there. The other part is the Orion crew capsule. Uh, of course, that's your pressurized crew capsule. Also acts as the service module. Uh, it does have a uh, interesting feature to it. It's the uh, launch abort tower. So if something goes wrong, they can get into the abort tower uh, and um, for escape. And then if it's not needed, that piece uh, will just detach. The other thing they're talking about is a gateway. It's unclear whether or not they're going to have a gateway in position by 2024. It's not required for that initial uh, landing in 2024. Uh, but what the gateway is, is a small um, space station that will be in orbit around the moon. And it will maintain a permanent orbit around the moon. Uh, will not only be used for this mission if it's uh, up there in time, uh, but also for future missions as well. It'll act as a fuel and supply depot, a science outpost. Uh, that'll be where the um, the capsule will dock when it gets uh, to the moon, and then it'll, people will jump in the uh, lunar landing system, which is the last piece of it. And the crews will uh, board the lunar lander from the gateway to, to go to the surface and then reverse that coming back. Uh, so pretty cool uh, to get that gateway in place. There's three separate missions for the Artemis program. Um, Artemis 1 is going to be the first step, and that's going to be an uncrewed test flight. They'll test the Orion capsule and the uh, SLS together. Everything goes well there. The next phase will be moving into the Artemis 2. At this point, the SLS and Orion will uh, go up. It will have a crew, and it'll orbit the moon and then come back. Everything goes well there. All systems check. Then we're ready for Artemis 3, which is the final step. That's the full package, the full meal deal. And the SLS, Orion, full crew go up to the moon, not only orbit it, but also uh, go down to the surface and start uh, doing the exploration. All right. That's going to do it for uh, the what's going on right now. Uh, this will bring us to the Constellation of the Week. And you're actually going to get a two-for-one today. We're going to talk about Ursa Major. Um, it's also called the Great Bear. And anytime you talk about Ursa Major, you also got to talk about the Big Dipper. If you look up in the night sky, um, pretty much any time of the year, uh, this is another one of those constellations uh, that's considered to be um, circumpolar, so it never sets. Uh, but it is more visible at different times of the year. Right now is a perfect time to go up and look at it. It's up in the uh, north-northwest sky. Uh, you can see the Big Dipper. It's very typically easy to spot. It uh, consists of seven very bright stars. Uh, but the Big Dipper itself, and a lot of people think it's a constellation, but it's really an asterism, which we talked about in one of our previous podcasts, which is just a pattern of stars. Uh, the Big Dipper itself is in the greater constellation, the Great Bear. The rest of the Great Bear is really hard to see uh, unless you're in a very dark sky. So most people see the Big Dipper with no problem, but uh, the Great Bear is a little hard to spot, but worth it if you're in a dark area. 
The Big Dipper actually makes up the tail. The handle of the dipper is the tail. And then the bowl of the dipper goes into the body of the Great Bear. Another cool thing about when you look at the, uh, the Big Dipper portion is if you uh, locate the two stars at the edge of the bowl, on the outer edge of the bowl, and you follow those lines, make an imaginary line going straight out of the top of the bowl, and you keep going, you'll run right into Polaris, which is the North Star. Polaris is also the first star in the handle of the Little Dipper, or Ursa Minor. So in Greek mythology again, uh, Zeus had an affair with Callisto, and they had a child together. And Zeus's wife, not too happy about that, uh, and as her revenge, um, she turned Callisto into a bear. So the story goes that their son, Arcus, was in the woods and was hunting and saw a bear and was going to kill it. It turned out, you know, that was actually um, Callisto. And Zeus stepped in and sent Arcus and Callisto up into the heavens as protection, and they became the Great Bear and the Little Bear, as the constellations that we see today. So the Great Bear uh, has the Big Dipper as part of it, and then the Little Bear has the Little Dipper as part of it. So go find a nice dark spot, look up, and let your imagination go wild. Well, that will wrap up this week's podcast. Make sure to join me next week as we continue our love affair with space. Remember, if you don't love space, what's the point? <laughs>